we all know that interest rates are high. As of August 23rd, 2023, the national average for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage stood at 8.03%. The mortgage rate is now the highest that it's been since the year 2000, and home buying activity is at the lowest level it's been since 1995. Why do home prices keep rising? Here to discuss that today is the CEO and president of Bigger Pockets, Scott Trench. Welcome to the Afford Anything podcast, the show that understands you can afford anything, but not everything. Every decision that you make is a trade-off against something else, and that doesn't just apply to your money. That applies to your time, your focus, your energy, your attention, to any limited resource that you need to manage. So what matters most, and how do you make decisions accordingly? That is what this podcast is here to address. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast. As I mentioned in today's episode, we will be chatting with the CEO and president of Bigger Pockets, which is a real estate investing education group that has over 2 million members. In this conversation, which we recorded in person in Afford Anything's newest studios in the financial district of Manhattan, and by the way, tune into YouTube if you actually want to see it in person. It's not going to be up quite yet. We have a bit of a lag time between when things air in audio versus when they air in video, but go to youtube.com slash afford anything, hit subscribe, hit the little bell so that you get updates when we post stuff. And in a couple of weeks, you will see our interview with Scott Trench in person, in studio with all the expressions on our faces. And yeah, it's it's fun. It's um, I'm loving being able to record in person. Anyway, we talked about, obviously, why aren't home prices lower? What's going on? We discussed regional market dynamics because the market is not a monolith. What's happening in the Sun Belt versus the Northeast versus the Midwest? We talked about trends related to migration to development, all these factors that influence demand. We talked about interest rates, yield curves, trends related to new construction, both in single family and multifamily. We talked about how to think through investing in different markets and whether or not there will be a correction with single family homes. And we talked about syndications and why they are riskier in 2023. And we wrap all of this up with the ultimate question, what should we be doing right now? So buckle up because you're in for quite a discussion. Here is Bigger Pockets CEO and President Scott Trench. Hi, Scott. Hi, Paula. It's great to see you. It is great to see you. It's been a couple of years since I think I saw you in person last. Yeah, exactly. It was pre-pandemic for sure. Yeah, absolutely. The last time that we spoke was a very different real estate market. So much has happened in the last three years in real estate. Let's take a snapshot of where we are right now and bust through some of the myths and misconceptions. First of all, you know, we're recording this in August 2023. Can you give us a snapshot of where are we at this moment in real estate? Interesting. Well, you know, I'll break that into a tale of different parts and we'll focus on the residential real right. estate yes. market, right? So there's yeah. places in the commercial and multifamily space, different world. In the residential space, we're at this kind of point where I think a lot of people are surprised that mm -hmm. prices aren't lower, right? When interest mm -hmm. rates have doubled, why haven't housing prices come down? The lack of affordability has skyrocketed in the mm -hmm. last year. Mortgage payments are 40, 50, 60% more expensive for the same um, level of house. 
but prices haven't come down. What gives? That's, I think, the big question right now. Mm -hmm. And the big part of that story is what we call the lock-in effect. Homeowners around the country locked in three, Mm -hmm. 4% rate mortgages in the last couple of years have a lot of equity. Many homes in this country are paid off mm-hmm. and they're stuck. They mm-hmm. can't move because if you move, if you have a $700,000 house and you want to upgrade to an $800,000 house, maybe you could have afforded that a year or two ago. Or maybe you want more, more square footage. Maybe you mm-hmm. want to move to a different place. You can't do that now because you're giving up this low locked in mortgage right. rate and you're going to have a skyrocketing home payment. So all but the best opportunities, the most dire situations are eliminated from the right. transaction market. And so that's leading a lack of new supply and new inventory coming on, which is keeping prices high. Right. Well, in addition to that, higher interest rates also mean that it's more expensive for builders to build, mm-hmm. which then also contributes to lack of new inventory. Absolutely. And, you know, I would have thought that builders were going to get crushed this year. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, where the smart money was at. Boy, is that wrong. Right. Home builders have been, have been thriving in this environment because of that lock-in effect. One of my buddies doubled down on building more homes earlier this year. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't want to be on that side of that bed. And again, boy, was I wrong. This mm-hmm. guy is thriving right now. He's go- he's putting a bunch of properties on the market. They're not competing with existing property listings. Right. And so they're able to kind of set their terms. Sure. They're not selling for as much as they were a year ago, but they're selling for a lot more than they feared they would be at this point in time. Right. And they're still very profitable. And are we also seeing you know, that the stock prices of Home Depot, of publicly traded companies that benefit when a lot of people are renovating their homes, those stock prices have done very well. Has the trend followed? There's been a lot more renovation because of that lock-in effect. You know, I, that's a really good question. And I actually don't know the answer to that. Before this call, I would have wondered if Home Depot was actually struggling a little bit this year. And what we found in the real estate community is that a lot of flippers, for example, are mm-hmm. reporting that prices for dilapidated properties that need a lot of work have fallen a lot more than properties that don't need a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Perhaps ironically, because a lot of households don't want to spend the cash to fix up the property. They'd rather just pay more mm-hmm. for the property. So there might be something to that effect. But who knows? Those are some uh, different data points there. Right, right. Well, I mean, it stands to reason that the the interest you would pay on a 203k loan Mm-hmm. would also be, you know, substantially higher. And that would probably also have an adverse impact on the number of people who renovate. Yeah, there might just be fear of the unknown in rehabbing the properties, not knowing what to do, not knowing how much it's going to cost, all that mm, kind of stuff. Right. And and I mean, that is always present. But I suppose in 2023, when inflation is so out of control, the question is always why now, right? Mm-hmm. Fear of the unknown is omnipresent and universal. It's evergreen. But in an inflationary environment, there's added uncertainty. Absolutely. Speaking of an inflationary environment, what is happening with home prices? That's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Our VP of data analytics, Dave Meyer, Mm -hmm. uh, did a pretty extensive study on 295 housing markets around the country. And what's the story with home prices? It's really hard to make one right now. What is that story? Well, on average, home prices, and this is a month or two out of date. Mm -hmm. Um, This is an end of May report. But Prices are down 2% nationwide, but that doesn't really tell the story. 200 out of 295 markets are seeing home price appreciation. Mm -hmm. But the magnitude of the fall in many of the markets where you're seeing home price depreciation is counterbalancing that to get to that negative 2% growth Mm -hmm. rate. So markets like Boise, Idaho, for example, have fallen like 20% year -hmm. over year. But markets like Rochester, New York have seen pretty smooth and steady growth, like They almost haven't noticed the interest rate rising environment at all. 
So it's a pretty wild situation. And it's kind of really hard for, I think, investors and homeowners alike to kind of make make out what to do in that context. That's interesting. So year to date, the Case-Shiller Index is up, you know, from where we were January 1st. Overall nationwide, the Case-Shiller Index has risen. How can both be possible? How can the Case-Shiller be high while while nationwide you've got negative two? Yeah. So in 2022, Mm -hmm. prices came down towards the end of the year, right? They came up at the beginning of the year in Q1 period before interest rates rose. Mm. And then prices began falling. So year over year, Year starting in May, that's when you're starting to see some of that price decline. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, Boise is a particularly interesting example because Boise had the shortest number of average days on market of any major metro area in 2022. I actually was just looking this up for an article that I was writing for our newsletter, Boise in 2022 had as little as an average of eight days on market, uh, which is just phenomenally quick sales. Why have prices fallen? It was, it, was it simply that people over speculated in Boise? And so you're having a hyper local effect there? You know, I think it's going to be really hard. Real estate is so regional. Why, mm-hmm. why is Boise doing this? Why is a market in Austin, Texas doing this? What's going on with Charlotte, right? You can make up a, a different set of answers for each one of those. I, I might speculate that Florida, for example, some of the markets there are seeing negative rent growth and negative year-over-year home price appreciation because of the insurance things you've seen, right? It's almost impossible to get insurance in some places in Florida right. as a result of that. For Boise, I'm not sure specifically. It seems like a lot of out-of-towners moved there over the last five, six, seven years, and it was one of the hottest markets in the country. Mm-hmm. And maybe in the last year or two, the appeal of that or the relative spread one of the benefits of moving to Boise from Southern California, for example, might have been the much lower cost. If that's no longer there, maybe folks are moving back. Maybe there's other dynamics at play in a market like Boise. But I'm not an expert on Boise in on particular, Boise so I'm only speculating here. Right, right. Yeah, a lot, at least anecdotally, a lot of the interest in Boise seemed to be coming from you know, well-compensated knowledge workers migrating from coastal cities, mm-hmm. right, migrating from California. And it created a, a, some frothiness in the Boise market. For a while, but it goes to highlight how all real estate is local. How whenever people talk about the national real estate market, it's the, right. yeah. Your headlines two percent down year over year. Again, depending on how you want to look at it, we'll see how it plays out over the course of twenty twenty three versus twenty twenty two. Right, end of year, end of year comparison. But um, it's local, and that story, that two percent national headline has nothing to do with your reality, right? You ask people around the country at random, some people are going to say the market's up. Some people mm-hmm. are going to say it's flat. Some people are going to say it's down, and they're all right because right. it's so local. Because it's so hyper-local. To what do you attribute the 2023 year-to-date uh, rise? Like, why is it that we reversed out of the decline that was happening towards the end of 2022? Sorry, the, the current housing market right. is slightly negative to last year. Y- yeah, y- year over year, yes. But mm-hmm. I'm thinking year-to-date, January 1st through... August, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, nationwide, we've seen some some growth, right? So to what do you attribute that? Why has the aggregate market picked up this calendar year? One dynamic is with interest rates high right now mm-hmm. and typically tending to rise, when they fall briefly, like let's say it's interest rates are seven and a half and they come down to seven or 6.9. Right. A flood of people go in to get pre-qualified for mortgages. Mm. That creates a ton of competition in the weeks after that, after they get pre-approved or lock in those rates. Right. When the rates go back up, that comes out. And so I wonder if you're seeing pulses mm. of pricing around the country in markets that are being impacted by that kind of macro dynamic that's creating pockets of competition. And depending on when you look at the data, you're going to see these increases or decreases. 
So that's one speculation I've had because over the course of the year, you've been like, wow, there's nobody buying. And then there's like, oh, I just had a bidding war. <laughs> right. I think that's a dynamic that's going to happen as interest rates are volatile, but climbing right. um, in those little pockets of, of downturns there. I also think there's just a lot of demand for housing right now. You know, millennials are trying to move in and get houses. Right. A lot of them are moving back to where they grew up and trying to buy those houses. Denver, for example, had net outbound migration the last two years. Mm-hmm. I would never have predicted that a couple of years ago. Right. But I, I understand exactly, right? I'm, I'm 32 years old and a lot of my friends are moving back to Ohio, Maryland, mm-hmm. Northeast, because that's where they grew up and that's where they're starting to settle down again. We've got a couple of trends happening at the same time. We've got millennials. The population of millennials is significantly larger than the population of Gen X or of Gen Z, right? Mm-hmm. Millennials, as the children of baby boomers, millennials are a particularly large demographic relative to Gen X and Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And millennials are exactly at that age where many become first-time homebuyers. So you've got this trend where you have a lot of demand. And we've also known for more than a decade that housing supply is short. Why is it in most markets uh, or in most spaces, when there is low supply and high demand, the market takes care of that? Why is that not happening in housing? Why do we consistently and predictably have demand that exceeds supply, but we just can't get the supply up there? Another great question. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's supply or there's labor supply constraints. Right. There's materials mm-hmm. supply constraints. But I wonder if in 2023 and 2024, the exact opposite of what you're talking about is going to happen. We have the most new housing units under construction in history, at least where we've been tracking it. We have, I think, mm-hmm. 1.6 million units under construction. Mm-hmm. Now, 900,000 of those are multifamily units. So mm-hmm. the multifamily market is going to have a lot of stuff coming on. And that's all happening in the South and the West. Mm-hmm. But there's another, so what is that, six, 700,000, whatever the balance is, right. uh, single family homes that are under construction currently. And why is that happening? Well, it's a two or three year lag. This is not a overnight project. You didn't, you didn't start that last month. You started it three, four, five years ago, maybe a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with multifamily construction. So I wonder if in the next year or two, we're going to see, we're going to continue to see the the pressure of both interest rates and massive supply coming online. But again, to our point earlier, it'll be hyper-local. The South mm-hmm. and the West are going to see the brunt of that new supply coming online and the Northeast and the Midwest are not going to see as much supply coming online. Mm-hmm. So if in the Northeast, you might not see Prices come down or rents, you know, stabilize. They may continue to grow. But if you're in the Sun Belt, you might see housing prices become much more affordable in the next couple of years, next two years specifically. Wow. We'll see. So your theory then is that supply will catch up with demand. It's just taking some time, Mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. And there's a large body of thought around this. Who knows, like, the real fundamental answers. A couple of other key points around why supply is constrained. We have what's called the national local problem, mm-hmm. which is a, a kind of an ironic phrase about how most parts of most cities are zoned for single family only. Right. So everyone wants more housing supply, but nobody wants it in their backyard. Right. And no one wants their single family development to be the one that allows duplexes, triplexes, or quadplexes, much less a 15-story apartment building right. that blocks their view. Boston, for example, this came up in a forum post in Bigger Pockets. 85% of the land in Boston is zoned single family. Mm. So in order to even have the opportunity to build, you have to have a, uh, the right zoning. So that's one factor. Again, we have we talked about labor supply. We talked about material supply. Another factor is the labor itself, not just how do we encourage more people to do this, but housing booms and busts. So I would predict, and this happened in the Great Recession, so I'd predict a similar type of story here where 
tons of new construction happening in 2004, 2006, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007. No construction starting 2008, 2009, 2010. Right. So you have this pool of labor that's highly skilled in construction, and then they exit because they're all getting laid off because there's no more building activity. Right. So now you don't have skilled laborers to mm -hmm. do these big projects, right? Couldn't even hire them if you wanted to. Right. And so I think that's a dynamic that's impacting housing construction costs as well, is the lack of this skilled labor to do it. And so, you know, to really get skilled construction supervisors and leaders need to be in business for 10, 15, 20 years. And if the boom and bust cycle of real estate is so cyclical, oh, you're not your floor of labor is, is not high enough. So those are some theories, for example, that people have around why there's not enough housing. Right. You've mentioned how most of the development is happening in the Sun Belt, in, in the South and in the West, mm -hmm. right? That is public knowledge. It's public information. To what extent is that being factored into new developments in the Northeast and in the Midwest, right? It, which is another way of saying, are we going to see that shift flip as developers recognize more opportunities in overlooked parts of the country? Interesting. I think that the folks who are doing this like to think that they're really smart investors mm -hmm. and they're basing it on migration patterns. Right. So and part of that is, hey, why, why are we building so much in Denver and Phoenix? It's because we're expecting more people here. We believe there's going to be a lot of demand there. Right. I don't know if, if people have got it right or got it wrong, but if the demand doesn't turn up, you're at more risk in these places where a ton of supply is coming in. Right. right. So I think like I'll pick on Florida and Texas here. Right. Florida has got this insurance problem. Lots mm -hmm. of natural disasters. They're very business friendly. And a lot of people want to move to Florida for the climate. Mm -hmm. But they've also got offsets around politics, right? Mm -hmm. That's a draw for some people. And it's a not a draw for mm -hmm. other people. Same, same with Texas. And I think that there's a risk in those states that you're overemphasizing the benefits, not really factoring in the risks, specifically with, you know, I think insurance is the big one in Florida. I think property taxes are going to be a big one in Texas. Right. So, and you said there was net outflow from Denver for the last couple of years. It's minor, but, but My, a little bit. Yeah. Minor, yeah. And I, that's not something that I would have expected from a place like Denver. Mm -hmm. um, kind of scares you as a real estate investor in Denver <laughs> yes. because you see, you go look outside and there's 40 cranes, you know, or 15 cranes or whatever it is, all build multifamily. Right. The thing about population dynamics is that they change very rapidly because people have mobility mm -hmm. um, and can move quite quickly, you know, especially... Inside of the United States, I mean, there there are no restrictions against interstate movement. So it's very easy to move from Texas to Maine or from Florida to Kansas. You don't need a passport. You don't need a visa. You don't need currency exchange, right? You, you don't need special work papers for one state over another. So given that migration can happen so quickly, and yet there is such a lag time when it comes to real estate development, does that entrench... The population patterns that we've seen five years ago, um, I guess that's kind of a complicated way of saying, are developers building based on outdated data because of the necessary lag time? You're asking great questions that, again, I, I can only speculate on. Uh -huh. So these are, only, you know, this is a fun, fun discussion here, but no, yeah. I don't think anyone really knows the answer to these things. If I'm going to speculate, I would say that in the COVID pandemic, it was a big reshuffling. There's right. a lot of fuzzy data, right? So, for example, household formation spiked during mm -hmm. COVID. Really? Like, do we really have a lot more household households form or did people, you know, break up? When a divorced couple breaks up, there's a two-net household formation. When roommates separate, 
there's net new household formation. When someone in New York City uh, is renting an apartment and they don't want to be in New York City during COVID and they move out to, you know, a house with some land where they can actually get outside and, and, and breathe during the pandemic, maybe there's some sort of data manipulation. There's two households or something, two rents that are being paid, two uh, um, leases. So there's a big shuffling there. And so that's the big question is, are there going to be enough household formations nationwide? Where are they going to take place? And everybody's placing their bets when they're developing. That's, uh, you know, part of the bet behind it. I also think that with COVID, you had a great reshuffling of um, labor, right? Mm-hmm. You, instead of having to work in Denver at this job, you now had access to every job that you were qualified for in the entire country. Right. So wages skyrocketed for that cohort of workers, white collar mm-hmm. workers that could do their work remotely, mm-hmm. right? Because you just, why wouldn't you arbitrage that and take the, the highest check? Now, what's going to happen next? I think, you know, folks have largely probably optimized for that environment. There's always going to be people changing jobs to optimize for that. But that burst of activity, that burst of optimization for a lot of white collar workers, I think, is over. Mm-hmm. And a lot of companies are starting to require you to come back into the office. Mm-hmm. Requiring someone to come back to the office, you know, if you're the CEO, that there's probably going to be some people who are going to leave and there's going to be a different set of talent in there. I don't know how big of a thing that's going to be. I don't know where that's going to lead, but I can see that forcing people into bad situations, right? I got a remote job in New York from Denver. Mm -hmm. CEO now says, I want everybody in here. I have two options. I can look for another job, which is harder now, or I can move to New York and give up my 3% interest rate mortgage Mm. and get a more expensive housing environment. So I think those are going to be challenges that people are going to face in the next couple of years. And I don't really know. I haven't thought through it enough to think of how that will play out in terms of markets. We interviewed a researcher who's been studying work from home, remote work, since the late 90s, back when it was referred to as telecommuting. Mm -hmm. And one of the comments that he made in our interview was that he was starting to see a trend that he predicted would continue of the outer rings of major metro cities becoming very attractive because a lot of uh, offices will require workers to come in maybe two days a week, right? They, They have a hybrid work environment. And so people need to live close enough to their job that they could commute in every Monday and Friday, uh, you know, or every Tuesday and Thursday, but they don't necessarily need to be right in the city center anymore. I think that's so, a great theory. Mm-hmm. That makes all sense in the world to me. That's exactly what I did. Mm, I right. live 30 minutes outside of Denver in the pocket of the mountains and go in once a week to the main <laughs> office. So right. and it's 30 minute drive, but I would not do that every day if things were different, but that's exactly what I'm doing. So <laughs> yeah. All right. Excellent. But this is all speculation. I mean, so for the average person who's listening to this, who lives in some, we'll say mid-sized city, maybe they live in uh, Kansas City, mm-hmm. right? And they're thinking about, they're a knowledge worker, they're thinking about buying their first rental property or their second rental property. They're nervous about home prices, but they're also a little bit overwhelmed by all of this talk about home building and interest rates and, and all these macro factors. To what extent do they really need to think about this? I think all investing decisions start with a macro look and Mm -hmm. then boil down into a very tactical one. Mm -hmm. So if we zoom way out to the macro, as a middle-class American worker trying to get get started investing, I have a couple of broad options available to me. I can invest in the stock market. Mm -hmm. I can invest in the bond market or debt. I can invest in real estate. And I can try my hand at some alternatives, perhaps like Bitcoin or private businesses or whatever in there. If we're agreeing with that premise that that's kind of the broad opportunity set here, you know, how, how do things rate in relation to one another in terms of opportunities or diversification or whatever I'm looking for? The stock market, we just talked about how the real estate market is a 
down a little bit year over year from a price point, trending up yeah. year to date, uh, confusingly. But the stock market is up like what, 15, 17%, something like that year right. to date. If you exclude the fangs, it's down 2%. Hmm. So, you know, if you exclude mm-hmm. like five tech companies, yeah. essentially, the, the U.S. stock market mm. is down 2% year to date. That makes sense because Microsoft, NVIDIA, basically any, mm-hmm. any company that would profit from AI that has led the charge. Google, Apple, Microsoft, yeah. Tesla. Is Tesla? Yeah, I think Tesla is having a good year, but in the context of a bad two or three years, uh, something like that. Yeah, I haven't checked. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm off on that one. If you exclude these like five select tech companies that are mm-hmm. pretty big, market's down, mm. the rest of the market. How do you play into that? Interest rates. Interest rates are rising. There's a lot, not a lot of reason to believe that the Fed is going to bring them down mm-hmm. in the near term. There's right. a lot of reason to believe they're going to stop raising them. Right. But that's not good news. The yield curve is inverted. And so if the Fed doesn't reduce rates, the interest rates on longer term debt are going to keep marching up, which is bad news for the bond market. You got real estate, which, you know, hey, what's going on here? Why haven't prices come down more with mm-hmm. the interest rate environment? We talked about the intricacies of supply. What's holding back inventory is this lock-in effect. There is a lot of new constructions so that is a risk. And then you have, you know, small businesses, which are a lot of work and maybe inaccessible <laughs> to a lot of folks. Right. So in that context, you know, obviously, you know, I'm a real estate investor mm-hmm. and like real estate, I like the, the fact that I can lock in debt, amortize it over a long time horizon. I'm going to make money through amortization of my, my debt, some appreciation. I'm going to produce some cash flow. Once I've made that determination, now I pick those markets. Kansas City. I like Kansas City. I mm-hmm. think that's a great example of a place where there's potential opportunity in this country. I don't know the supply and de- demand dynamics. You need to dive into that. Is some of that supply that's cutting in the South and the Sun Belt hitting Kansas City or is that, are you pretty insulated from that? But if so, that might be a great place to hold real estate for a number of years and you can probably get a pretty good cash and cash return in a market like that in the Midwest. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. You know, spring is a good time for new beginnings. It's a great time for spring cleaning, for planning outdoor activities, and for going through your financial life to make sure that everything is in place that you need. Everything that you need is in place. And the thing about life insurance is that shopping for life insurance can be part of your financial planning for the year. And Policy Genius is there to help with that. Policy Genius has licensed award-winning agents and technology. What does that mean? It means you can, in just a few clicks, compare quotes from top insurers. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not for the insurance companies. They don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another. And they have thousands of five star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. When it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I didn't know how to optimize what was in my wallet, so I didn't know how to optimize how to use travel rewards to pay for vacations. But now I've got a new card with more miles, and I'm getting business class upgrades, I'm getting lounge access, I'm getting all kinds of perks that I didn't even know that I was missing out on. What could future you do with more travel rewards? 
a hotel upgrade, lounge access, wherever you go next. Make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search, it's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How do you go about or how would you recommend a person go about trying to figure out which city they should be investing in, right? As we discussed at the beginning at the top of the show, all real estate is local. All real estate is hyper-local. So there is no such thing as a national market. There's only a bajillion mini markets, but, uh, or a bajillion local markets, right? But for a person who lives in Manhattan, who is definitely not going to invest in Manhattan, they're trying to figure out if they're going to invest in Kansas City or Omaha or Cincinnati. How do they get started? Yeah. I think I'll again quote our VP of data analytics, Dave mm-hmm. Meyer. I think he has a good handle on this, but you know, I think there's three ways to think about what you want to go for. Do you want cash flow? Mm-hmm. Do you want appreciation? Or are you looking for a hybrid? There's nothing that offers everything all at once, right. but you can get a blend of, you know, if, if you're to plot out the appreciation and cash flow of the market, so see a distinct trend line where there's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. There are bubbles, uh, you know, over, this is over the last five to 10 years. There are bubbles in, in a couple of markets that have done well with both, but you're really going to have to make a trade-off decision there. Yeah. Many investors choose cash flow. I think that's great. But I personally think that, you know, unless you are needing the cash flow in the near term, appreciation is going to net you off in a better place in five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. So you look at those net ma- uh, migration patterns. You look at where the supply is coming online and where it isn't. You look at places that you, you know, you know that you like, that you like to be a part of your life is so you could actually physically go there, visit, meet the people that are going to be renting your, uh, that are going to be managing your property and helping you find deals. I think those are going to give you distinct advantages and it's a bet of what's going to happen over the next 10, 15, 20 years, mm. right? Dave Meyer mm-hmm. has some projections. He's got here are the best 10 cash flowing markets currently in the, in the country. Here are 10 that might have great appreciation prospects next year. Or here are some hybrid markets. Mm-hmm. So you have to read that and determine if you agree with those, uh, his calls on, on those ones. All right. Well, we'll link to yeah. that in the show notes. <laughs> so what you just outlined, uh, determining 
if you're going to pursue an appreciation strategy versus a cash flow strategy, makes me think of the analog to that would be essentially growth stocks versus dividend stocks. You got it. Right? Mm -hmm. And the trade-off, you know, if you're going for a, a high dividend portfolio, you know, the trade-off of a, a, a stock spits out high dividends because it's not reinvesting in growth. Absolutely. Now, um, I'll also answer from a context of what I'm doing personally. I invest in Denver, Colorado. I am not bullish on Denver, Colorado real estate in the next two or three years, but I'm not doing anything with my portfolio. I'm logged in to that 3%, 4% interest rate mortgages, right? As a landlord, I'm holding those properties. I'm expecting relatively low appreciation compared to the rest of the country. So if the country's negative, I expect Denver to be more negative. Mm. If the country's positive, I expect it to be less positive over the next couple of years because of the supply dynamics mm. that I, I was telling you about. But I also believe that over the next 10 to 15 years, holding on to this great low interest rate debt in my backyard operating well, I'm going to harvest cash flow and I'm going to amortize my debt. And over 10 to 15 years, I think Denver is as good a bet as any other market in the country because of the, the fundamental reasons people want to be in Denver. It's like right. fairyland in the summer <laughs> uh, in particular in the front range. Obviously, right. I don't know what we do in the winter besides uh, skiing and snowboarding. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm just bullish on that. And that's what it really comes down to at some point for a lot of investors is, okay, well, call me up in 15 years, see how Denver has appreciated mm -hmm. from 2023 to 2038. Now, we'll find are, out at that point. Are you an advocate? So you, what you've also outlined is you're in just one metro market. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the pros and cons between consolidating all of your rental properties into one metro market versus diversifying across two, three, four markets? I believe the advantages are in control. Yes, you're taking more concentrated geographic risk mm -hmm. in the market, but I think that the advantage, I know the market, I know that this area of town is likely to appreciate rapidly over the next couple of years. And this area isn't going to change much, or I can make those bets with relative confidence because I live here. I know the contractors in my network. I've met the agents that I work with, the lenders, all that stuff, I think gives you an advantage over time. When things get particularly painful, I can go to the property, see what's going on and make a call on, okay, this is how I want to handle this negative rehab situation, right? A basement flooded one of properties recently. Okay. Here's the plan. No, that's not going to release. That's going to patchwork it. I need to fundamentally solve this problem by doing this, 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 and this. I can see that in Denver in a way that would be much more painful for me to get on a flight and go out of town for. So I always think that despite the differences, you know, regionally, if you're going to look for an out of town market, pick the best one, pick the one that you think is going to be most conducive to your goals. But I also heavily bias you. If you're looking to real invest in real estate for the next 20 years, do it in your backyard might just be the, the best way to, to win. Mm, or at least somewhere that's maybe within driving distance rather than flying distance. Yeah. So if you live in New York City, for example, maybe someplace, uh, maybe Albany or yeah. Rochester. And, you know, I'm, I'm hearing success stories from New Jersey and, and pocket, pockets there. So again, I'm, I'm fairly bullish on the Northeast and I won't be surprised if New York isn't a particularly good place for the next couple of years as well. Mm. So I know it's really expensive. But I'm not a bear on New York real estate here. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's hard to squeeze a good cap rate out of uh, out of New York, or at least out of Manhattan. But you're going to have lots of rent growth too. So there's lots of good reason to believe in rent growth and um, lots of cash flow growth. Right now, how do you make projections around rent growth? So this is a topic that seems to have come on people's radar fairly recently because for the last decade we've seen rent growth be you know two percent, three percent per year, and in the last couple of years. Rent growth has exploded nationwide, but property taxes, you know, a lot of that gets offset by higher property taxes because of higher home values. So net to the landlord, it, you know, it's kind of a wash. Mm -hmm. How do you price in rent growth when you are forecasting 
for a rental property. I think rent growth predictions are all over the place nationwide. Mm-hmm. I think that there's this really complicated supply and demand dynamic, but then there's also the simple fact that mortgage rates, which is your which is effectively competition to renting, have skyrocketed so much that makes housing so much more expensive and right. should be significant upward pressure on rents. Here we are in 2023 with, I think, negative rent growth by 1% for the first time in a couple of years. That was a headline recently, year over year again, mm-hmm. uh, from this month to the same month last year, uh, July, compared to July 2022. So I think it's anybody's guess. I think you're going to have a lot of downward pressure on rents, though, in my opinion, because of the supply dynamic I just told you about. Again, mm-hmm. your competition from multifamily. You got the single family stuff coming online, but that's typically owner-occupied. All of the multifamily units are rentals, right? So I think that in some markets, you're going to see significant downward pressure on rents. And in some markets, you're going to see rent going up. The major thing that I'm hearing from you, uh, I think my key takeaway from what we've spoken about so far, is that if you're thinking about investing in a market, look at how many new multifamily starts Mm -hmm. are happening in that market. And that's going to be a key indicator on price pressure. Uh, within that market. is that Would that be accurate to say? I think that's right. And I, and I think kind of listening to myself talk here about the rents and stuff, I'm like, you know, I think the higher level pieces have a long-term outlook. Mm. Buy an asset that you're going to hold on to for a long period of time because this is anybody's guess and there's going to be volatility in a lot of these regions. It's super complicated. You have to guess at what the Fed's going to do with interest <laughs> rates. Mm-hmm. You have to guess at what's going to happen with migration patterns and demand dynamics in your market. You can get a pulse on supply. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that you can actually look at. And you're going to have to use that information to make a calculated guess if you want to do like a three-year investment thesis. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a 20-year investment thesis, you buy a good property in a good part of town that cash flows from mm-hmm. day one, run your numbers really carefully, add value, put it to its highest and best use, and hold on and let the tenants pay off the mortgage and produce a little bit of cash flow, and things are going to be good there. Buy a good deal at a reasonable price running your numbers. So I think that's the the big message. Then again, I, of course, have spent the last 30 minutes diving into, de- de- you know, <laughs> great detail, trying to guess the outcomes of these very specific markets and understand the nuances of what happened last year and try to break what's going to happen that last year. So like, again, what I'm doing in Denver, mm-hmm. I'm holding on to my properties for the next 10 years. That was the decision. I'm, I might sell them earlier, but I'm mentally prepared to hold on for the next 10 years. I expect them not to appreciate a ton. Mm-hmm. They may come down in the next, in the near term, but at the end of 10 years, I'm going to have amortized the, the debt to a significant degree, produce some cash flow. And I'm also really liking the blending market right now. Mm. Um, because I'm, I'm less bullish on things like stocks or real estate, I like the fact that interest rates have risen and I can get a 7, 10, 12% yield on a hard money loan, for example, mm-hmm. or corporate bond debt, for example. Mm, so you're a big fan of the, of private lending right now. Yes. Interesting. Can you elaborate a little bit on why you are bullish on the Northeast? The one major factor that I've heard is there's not a lot of new construction happening in the Northeast which is a reason for bullishness because supply will remain low, which puts upward pressure on prices. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, are there any other reasons that you're bullish on this this region? I guess, let me rephrase, I'm less bearish. I think I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm more neutral, neutral okay. positive. I think the real estate market is going to be fine. It's not going to explode in the next couple of years. I think it's going to be, it, it, there's a risk of it negatively impacting the South and the Sun Belt. Mm. I think that there will be business as usual in a lot of pockets of the Northeast and the Midwest. And I just think that's because nothing's happening there. The changes are not, they didn't explode in price, a lot of these markets. Mm-hmm. Again, it's very regional. Northeast is a broad category. Right. Tons of places in the Northeast. But like, you take a town like Rochester, New York, right? Nothing exploded. Nothing came down with a high interest rate environment. 2022, 2023, the patterns for home price appreciation look almost remarkably similar the preceding 10 years, right? So there's a very pretty chart of no change. 
that's comforting <laughs> in an environment like now compared to a Boise, which mm. is coming down 20%. You're like, what's going to happen there? What's the issue? It's still really expensive out there. Yeah. So th that's more of my, my mentality on that. And if I'm looking for a safe haven where you can operate consistently and have good odds at a predictable pattern, I think that there's a lot of markets outside of like the really big cities. New York is its own beast where you can, you can do pretty well and with a consistent approach. Right. Exactly. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Given how much multifamily inventory is about to come online in the next coming years, uh, new construction necessarily is class A, right? Everything mm -hmm. is class A when it's first built. So what type of pressure could that put on any multifamily unit, including residential multifamily, uh, duplex, triplex, fourplex, that is class B or class C? The conventional wisdom is that class C and class B get crushed right. um, in that environment. Right. Again, third time today, I'm quoting Dave. Dave just did a really good, a brilliant piece of analysis here and, and, and found that class A apartment units existing are down 13% year over year on a price per unit basis mm -hmm. in terms of sale price and, and class B and C down very moderately. So it's really interesting to see that the class A, existing class A inventory is getting hit first and hardest in this kind of first or second, maybe third inning um, that we're in here of the, uh, the multifamily game where wow. a lot of these, this debt is coming due. So, yeah, so that, that goes against the conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, I, would, I would not have guessed that. Right, right. So, and, and just to explain to the audience why the conventional wisdom is the way it is, we'll use commercial as a, I think it's probably, it's easier to illustrate this concept when we talk about commercial real estate, right? So the building that we are recording this in right now is this beautiful building, right? Beautiful, beautiful office building with views of the Statue of Liberty, People who are watching on YouTube see a, a sound booth, basically. But outside of this, you have, as you saw, beautiful, big, gorgeous windows. You can see the New York skyline. You can see the Statue of Liberty. You can see the Hudson River. If you're going to come to work, if you have to commute to work, you would much rather commute to a place like this than you would commute to some dingy little office with ugly office carpeting and fluorescent lighting and low ceilings, right? You would much rather, if you, if you have to commute to work anyway, you would much rather commute to a beautiful office than you would to an ugly office. And so in the commercial space, class B and class C is getting absolutely hammered while class A is doing pretty well. But then you take that, and so just to explain to the audience the reason that that conventional wisdom exists, yeah, the conventional wisdom is if you build a whole bunch of class A, people are going to flock to class A, and that's going to hammer class B and C. So it's interesting to see how that's not happening in residential. It makes sense that if you flood the market with residential class A, that just means there's more competition. Maybe the demand for class A is the same, but there's more supply for class A. You mm -hmm. know, whereas with office spaces, it changes the demand appetite, but with residential, the demand appetite doesn't change. So it's simply the supply in each relative class that changes. Yeah, I have no idea there. And I was surprised by the data. I am in a class A apartment building as an, as an LP on one of my syndications. So we'll see how that plays out, how that market's affected. So anecdotally, syndications, I'm hearing more about them lately. More people are talking about them. They also seem to be a smoke and hot pile of garbage. What is happening in that world right now? I think a lot of syndicators are in trouble. There's going to be a wake up call. People are going to lose money. They're going to mm -hmm. have it locked up for a very, very long time mm -hmm. in a lot of these syndications. And you need to get educated. You need to understand yeah. what the pricing is. Then you understand the actual asset class that you're investing in. You need to go through all of the things that I just talked about earlier around supply 
theories around demand, right? How are you going to raise the rents mm -hmm. on these properties or increase the net operating income by cutting expenses? And then what's your exit cap going to be? So there's a uh, multifamily property is priced on a cap rate basis. So if it's a five cap property is for a hundred million dollars, that means it produces five million dollars in income. Right. If you can increase it to six million bucks, now your price goes what to 120 million or something like that, right? But if your exit cap is not five percent, but six percent, all of a sudden you didn't create any value by increasing that cash flow from 5 million to 6 million bucks. All that work you did to raise rents, reduce costs. Those are things that you're going to have to figure out. And I think, yeah, this is going to be, the syndication market's going to be an interesting eye-opener for a lot of investors. Why now, though? Because I feel like, at least anecdotally, it seems like syndication has gotten worse or riskier in 2023 than it was in the past few years. That's at least the the general impression that I've been getting from hearing stories uh, in the battlefield. Well, okay. So going back to that cap rate dynamic that I was mm -hmm. talking about earlier, you're investing in a syndication and because the competition, mm -hmm. lots of LPs wanted great returns. Yeah. Lots of general partners wanted to make the buku dollars that I just told, told right. you about. Okay. So now I'm now that's increasing the price of properties or reducing the cap rate. Yeah. And an interesting phenomena happens. If a cap rate is 10, mm -hmm. right? So 10%, so $10 million in profit for a hundred million dollar complex. Right. And I increase the profit by a million bucks. I've increased the value by $10 million. Mm -hmm. But if the cap rate is 4%, I have a $4 million you know, uh, property and I increase it by, I've, I've increased the value by 20 times mm. or 25 times, right? In a 4% cap rate environment. Right. So as the cap rate gets lower, every dollar of income that you produce generates that much more wealth because the value of the property is increasing by so much more. Mm. So it's almost easier and easier and easier and easier to make your financial models explode and the returns explode and produce incredible amounts of wealth in a more expensive commercial real estate market. Because if you can drive $1 of income, right. you're driving $25 of wealth instead of $1 of income in a 10% cap rate environment, creating $10 of wealth. Right. So right. that I think fueled a lot of this mm -hmm. with that low interest rate environment in particular. And what's changed overnight is that rising interest rate environment. Go from, you know, these low interest rates to a six, seven or 8% interest rate environment. Now all of a sudden you can't buy a property at 4% cap rate with a 7% or 8% interest debt, right? You're just negatively arbitraging that you have to believe that rents are going to explode mm. over the next couple of years for that to make any sense whatsoever, right? Or that interest rates are going to come cratering back down and nobody's believing that right now. Right. And so that's the problem that people are running into nationwide and in specific sectors one by one. Look, a lot of syndicators did nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. The first pieces that are crumbling here are the folks that are unethical or wildly inappropriate and speculative. And mm -hmm. there's a couple of news stories around that. But a lot of good, hardworking people who underwrote and tried their best here are still going to lose money or be locked up for a long period of time because of the environment, the dynamic I just talked about. Mm. Let me reflect that back to you, what I, what I heard you say. If you've got a property that has a very low cap rate, let's go lower, let's say a three cap. You got a three cap and you increase it to a four cap, you have just added a third of its value. Is that right? Sorry, you, you're not increasing it to a four cap. If you take a three cap and mm -hmm. you add $1 of income to the property, you divide one by 3% and mm -hmm. you've added a dollar, a property that generates $1 of income at a four cap would be a $25 property. Right. A property that generates $1 of income at a three cap would be a $33 property. So if I increase the value, the dollar from one 
you know, to two, um, I've increased the value mm-hmm. from 33 to 66 million, right. $66, right? In the 4% cap rate environment, if I increase it by $1, I've increased it from 25 to 50. So it just multiplies like that as the cap rates come down. I'm, I know I'm getting really technical here. Hopefully yeah. I'm not losing everyone. Yeah, yeah. And so when you say you add a dollar of value to that property, are you talking about forced renovations? Yeah, you can increase the profit, the oper- net operating income of a property oh, by right. increasing rents. Increasing rents or reducing operating expenses. Yeah, you can charge the tenants utility fees. You can meter right. every unit. Now the tenant pays utility fees. That reduces your costs. But when you improve the net operating income, that necessarily improves the cap rate. Let's say you're buying a building in New York. It, it's almost like how much? How much is a? Because uh, it's, it's NOI over the value of the property. That's right. It's the unleveraged dividend yield on the property. Yes, right? and it's a way to compare two properties, right? Two properties. Exactly. Yeah. You know, one property might have 400 units. One property might have 300 units, but they'll both trade at a four cap right. in New York at, with the same type set of assumptions. Right. Then, if you improve the NOI of a property, that necessarily also improves the cap rate of the property. If cap rate is calculated as NOI over value. Not necessarily. So the, the cap rate um, is just what the property trades at. It's a metric of kind of comparing two properties to one another. So right. they'll both trade at a four cap. Mm-hmm. You know, a 300 unit apartment building and our 400 unit apartment building will both trade at a four cap, for example. Mm-hmm. One will be worth 100 million and the other will be worth 75 million because one is bigger than the other. But the, the cap rate, you're buying the income. So you're just comparing, they're both worth the same per dollar of income. So what you're saying, if the formula is NOI over value equals cap, yep. then if you were to hold the cap rate steady and improve the NOI, then the value increases. Yes. And the lower the cap rate, the bigger the multiplier right. effect that is. And so that's why people are chasing this down and down and down and down and down and down into the fours or the threes. And when we think about that, that's saying, I'm going to spend a hundred million bucks to buy 3% cash flow yield. Right. Right. That's insane. Exactly. When I can go to my, my bank and get a, four and a half percent yield. Right. So that's the thing that was happening here is as things became more expensive, ironically, people made more and more money and their mod- their financial models had more and more operational leverage. Right. And the, the returns piled and piled and piled and piled up. And now I think, and I think a lot of people rolled and rolled and rolled into more investments. And that's mm. where I think a lot of LPs are not feeling so great about certain investments. And again, I'm not even saying that everyone did it wrong. In the low interest rate environment, this was the, the play. This made all the sense in the world. What's changed is doubling interest rates. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you I would have thought interest rates would be where they're at right now two mm. years ago. I don't think anybody, anyone would have predicted that. Right. Interesting. And the model of holding cap rates steady, right? So uh, holding cap rates steady and thereby increasing the value by virtue of improving the NOI, mm-hmm. that happens in commercial in a way that it doesn't happen in residential. Yeah. Residential, right. you compare the, you know, what, what's my property worth? Well, my house has four bedrooms and two baths and the house next or, door has yeah. four bedrooms, two baths. Therefore, they're worth about the same amount, about the same condition. Yeah. It's a comp. Com- comparable properties. Exactly. Yeah. And even multifamily residential, the cap rates tend to fluctuate. You know, th- those aren't held steady, I think, in, in the same way that they are in commercial real estate or major multifamily. Yeah, I mean, in a small multifamily space, duplex, triplex, quadplex, you're still on the comp um, yeah, basis. But once you get into like the larger multifamily, typically folks are comparing, are looking for like, okay, what's the best cap rate? And like the cap rate can confuse people with this, but it's really just, I'm going to pay like a higher cap rate. I'm going to pay less money for a multifamily property that's dilapidated and needs a lot of work and a big rehab than I am for one that's brand spanking new and everything's in great condition that's fully re- renovated. Well, yeah, and that makes sense because you, you would want... Returns to be commensurate with risk. And so, of course, you would demand a higher cap for uh, a dilapidated property because that necessarily is a bit riskier. Yeah. But 
Yeah, I think the part of the financial model that's different is the model of holding the cap steady. You know, that doesn't happen in residential. Well, the, yeah. the, and the cap does not stay steady, right? Everyone modeled it was like it was going right. to be, I'm going to buy it at a four cap. Yeah. I'm going to raise rent by a million bucks. I'm going to sell it at a five. That's not happening. Not only are rents not going up, right? They're going down this year. Right. But the cap rate is increasing from 4% to 5%. If I have a, a $5 million NOI, $100 million right. property at a, um, mm-hmm. at a five cap, and then next year it's a six, everything's trading at a six cap, but I didn't increase the op- net operating income. Now all of a sudden that property is worth what, like 20% less? Less. Yeah, significantly so, less. But that, that's a disaster, right. right? I mean, you leverage this thing at 30%, $30 million in equity, $70 million in debt to buy a $100 million asset. Now you've got $12 million in equity left. That's an absolute devastating experience. And now you have to wait years to amortize that debt to try to pay everybody off. That's the reality that's happening in the multifamily space right now. I know a lot of people will beat me up and say it's not that bad. It's not happening. But that's what I'm fearing is happening right now. And I think that people just aren't trading because they don't want to realize that loss right now. Mm. There's no reason to do it. I've locked in my debt five, seven, or 10 years. I'm not going to value my property at $12 million, $18 million lower. No one's forcing me to do that. There's no reason to do it. I'm right. just going to hold on. We'll return to the show in just a moment. Home is where you go to relax, to recover from the day, to get ready for the next day. And you want it to feel nice, but you don't want to spend a lot of money. You need something that's in budget, something affordable, but also something that fits your style and taste. Wayfair has you covered. They have everything from appliances to furniture to art to rugs for your living room, your bedroom, your deck or patio. I have shelves from them that are hanging in my bathroom right now that they look really nice, but they're also super functional for storage. I have a daybed from them that's in my living room. Again, very functional, multi-purpose. You can get items from Wayfair for your own home. You can do it for a rental property. They have a massive, massive selection. So regardless of what your taste is, they've got a huge variety of styles and it's very budget friendly. You'll find pieces that look good, that fit your style at a great price. And they have fast and free shipping, even on the big stuff. Every style is welcome in the Waberhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com. Wayfair. Every style, every home. Are you just doing it all at your company and you're thinking there's got to be a better way to, to get this all done? Well, JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. You see, great people are at the core of every business, and JustWorks can help you attract and retain top talent. So with JustWorks, you have access to medical, dental, and vision insurance and benefits, plus benefits that include wellness and mental health support, fertility and family building, even financial planning. And when you or your employees have a question about setting up benefits or paychecks, their team of experts is standing by 24-7 to help. JustWorks gives you these HR tools that comply with state payroll tax requirements, keep up with state labor laws, and access a variety of health insurance plans in any state. Regardless of whether you and your team are working remotely or in-person or hybrid or some combination thereof, JustWorks makes it simple to hire and manage remote employees across all 50 states. It's a cloud-based platform that allows managers and employees alike to quickly and securely access payroll benefits and other HR functionality. 
Learn more about JustWorks and how they can help you get more done by visiting justworks.com slash podcast. That's justworks.com slash podcast. Within real estate asset classes, are you relatively more bearish on large multifamily? Oh, yeah. I don't, yeah. Think, I don't think single family is going, like, going anywhere. What's going to be the shock? Right. Like everyone's locked in their long-term debt. Everyone's got good credit. Nobody's got crazy mortgages. Right. Right. There's uh, a higher percentage of uh, people who own single-family free and clear now than there has been in decades. Yeah. Uh, uh, largely baby boomers, you know? Maybe it'll come down. Maybe it'll it'll flatline. But like I think there's a reasonable chance it stays pretty flat, maybe even um, continues appreciating a few mm-hmm. points. I think multifamily is going to have a correction, uh, a pretty big one. What, what about residential multi, duplex, triplex, fourplex? Do you think it's going to trend gonna more mi- like single family? Yeah, I think it's going to mirror more, more of more the single, single family, family space. I think, space. It, I think it trades on a comp basis for the most part, but it'll be in between, but more leaning towards the single family space. Right. At least I hope, because that's what I own. Uh, so. <laughs> How many units do you have? I have 13 units. Oh, nice. So nice. plus a small piece of a couple hundred units nice. uh, in one of those syndications. Oh, cool. Very so. cool. I've, I've got seven. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is actually quite, uh, validating <laughs> because what I'm hearing, uh, I've, I've always specialized only in buying residential. And what I'm hearing is residential is the place to be. Re- residential, either single family or small multifamily, as long as it's classified residential, mm-hmm. there seems to be, at least in your opinion, more stability in anything that's classified residential and perhaps some more risk in anything that would be classified as commercial. That's right. I, I waffle between thinking that small multifamily and single family rental real estate is either the best asset to invest in or the least bad asset <laughs> to invest in. So right. I, I, I waffle between those, you know, over with, with a long time horizon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my personal view, of course, that, you know, yeah, that's like the, the fox counting the chickens in terms of, you know, promoting real estate. And I work at bigger pockets. Right. Yeah, exactly. But it's refreshing to hear that when you are bearish on some component of real estate, you are unafraid to express that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to pump up the real estate market right. here. I, I'm trying to get to the most realistic assessment. Um, assessment I can get to. And, you know, that sometimes angers some of the syndicators in our platform. And I think there's really good, smart people who disagree with me. So like, don't just take my analysis here. Hard. I could be completely wrong right. on all this stuff. This is just what I'm seeing and how I'm how I'm feeling about it right now. But yeah, I, I think that that's that's the deal. And in two years, there's a good chance that if any of this comes remotely true, I'm gonna be saying now's the time to buy a lot of multifamily because <laughs> as soon as that construction glut is done with mm. by the, you know middle to end of 2024, there's not gonna be any new multifamily coming on the market. Nobody's starting a new project at that point in time. New supply is gonna be much much lower. It's gonna be that boom and bust cycle. So. Yeah, I'll be back in two years telling you how it's time. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, are there um, any things that I haven't asked you about that uh, that you want to cover? Maybe one last thing to cover would be just kind of like practically, well, like what should we be doing right now? Oh, yeah. All yeah. right. So how does this how does this translate to something like? Look, I think nothing changes about the fundamentals. You earn more mm-hmm. than you spend. You accumulate a pile of cash each month, and then you de- you direct it towards an asset that you think is going to be performing over the next five to ten years. Mm-hmm. Real estate's one good option in there. If you have a long time horizon, if you're willing to operate it to some degree, if you're willing to run the numbers in there, index fund investing, always a big fan of that. A big portion of my personal wealth is going to that. And I think that people should weight debt more heavily than they have over the last 10 to 15 years. I think that's one big takeaway here is all this stuff, all this work that's going on, all this analysis, 
or you can just lend to somebody and let somebody else take the first 30% of the risk on a property. I love real estate, note investing. I love bonds, all that kind of stuff. You're talking about passive income. Simple interest is right there waiting to be collected mm. in this market in a way that I think a lot of people haven't like internalized yet. It's so simple. It's so obvious with rising interest rates blend. So I would just encourage people to look into that as well as another part of their portfolio allocation in the current climate. When you lend privately, do you use a platform or do you tend to do one-on-one -on -one deals through your network? I'm not bold enough yet. Um, I consider myself a complete novice at this. So mm -hmm. I've actually, I actually have networked with a number of hard money lenders. Mm -hmm. They're on bigger pockets, for example. And those hard money lenders originate a loan with a lender that they'll know. Right. And then they um, keep originating loans, but maybe they have a 10 million or $20 million pool of capital they can lend. Mm -hmm. Once they've lent that, they can't do any more loans. So they sell those loans. Wall Street has stopped buying them. So I'm looking around and I just bought a loan from one of my local hard money lenders in Longmont, Colorado, 40 minute drive from where I'm at. Yeah. A property. I called up my friend, Mindy Jensen. She told me, <laughs> oh yeah, if, if you had to foreclose, this would be a great property to own at this amount at this price point. So that's how I did it. I called up a hard money lender and bought a loan, did some due diligence on the property and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I did another one out in uh, Washington state as well with another hard money lender. So looking to slowly get into a couple more of those. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you for spending this time with us. You said it a few times. Where can people find you? If they want to hear more of you. You can find me at, at Bigger Pockets. I uh, host the co-host the Bigger Pockets Money Show podcast with Minnie Jensen. That's a great way to, to find me. And my email is scott at biggerpockets.com if you want to beat me up for any of my uh, bad analysis today. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. It's good to see you again. Great to see you. Thank you so much. Really exciting to be here and had a really good conversation. Thank you, Scott. What are three key takeaways that we got from this conversation? Number one, the lock-in effect is impacting demand and keeping prices high. Homeowners around the country locked in 3 4% mm -hmm. rate mortgages in the last couple of years, have a lot of equity. Many homes in this country are paid off mm -hmm. and they're stuck. They mm -hmm. can't move because if you move, if you have a $700,000 house and you want to upgrade to an $800,000 house, uh, maybe you want more, more square footage. Maybe you mm -hmm. want to move to a different place. You can't do that now because you're giving up this low locked in mortgage right. rate and you're going to have a skyrocketing home payment. So all but the best opportunities, the most dire situations are eliminated from the right. transaction market. And so that's leading a lack of new supply and new inventory coming on, which is keeping prices high. So why does this matter? Well, I've heard anecdotally, I've heard a handful of people say, I'm going to wait for mortgage rates to drop. And then I'll buy. Well, let me ask you, what do you think is going to happen when mortgage rates drop? Do you think that there will be more buyers or fewer buyers? And also, do you think that there will be more supply or less supply? The evidence indicates that there will be an increase in both. When mortgage rates drop, it's likely that supply will increase and demand will increase. But this may not happen in lockstep. And there is a chance that demand may outpace supply, at least in some markets, leading to the type of bidding wars that we remember from 2020. Remember that when it was like every time a house came on the market, it got multiple offers on the day it hit the market. That was what happened in 2020 and, and the first half of 2021. That's not a problem anymore, but it could be again. And so marry the property, date the rate. Right? If you're going to buy a home, buy the home that you plan to buy and hold 
and date the rate. You can refi when mortgage rates drop. You're not stuck with an 8% rate forever. So that's key takeaway number one. Key takeaway number two, the NIMBY effect is really impacting housing supply, particularly when it comes to multifamily builds and any type of push towards increased density. Everyone wants more housing supply, but nobody wants it in their backyard. Right. Right? No one wants their single family development to be the one that allows duplexes, triplexes, or quadplexes, much less a 15-story apartment building right. that blocks their view. Boston, for example, this came up in a forum post in Pockets. 85% of the land in Boston is zoned single family. Mm. So in order to even have the opportunity to build, you have to have a, uh, the right zoning. So that's one factor. Again, we have we talked about labor supply. We talked about material supply. Another factor is the labor itself, not just how do we encourage more people to do this, but housing booms and busts. So I would predict, and this happened in the Great Recession, so I had predicted a similar type of story here where tons of new construction happening in 2004, 2006, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, no construction starting 2008, 2009, 2010. Right. So you have this pool of labor that's highly skilled in construction, and then they exit because they're all getting laid off because there's no more building activity. Right. So now you don't have skilled laborers to mm-hmm. do these big projects, right? Couldn't even hire them if you wanted to. Right. And so I think that's a dynamic that's impacting housing construction costs as well, is the lack of this skilled labor to do it. And so, you know, to really get skilled construction supervisors and leaders need to be in business for 10, 15, 20 years. And if the boom and bust cycle of real estate is so cyclical, oh, you're not your floor of labor is, is not high enough. So those are some theories, for example, that people have around why there's not enough housing. If we want more housing affordability, we need greater supply. And the way to get greater supply is through new construction and more multi-unit, higher density construction. With a multi-unit, you take the same piece of underlying land and you have more units of housing on that same parcel of land. That is increased density. And that increased density is what we need in order to have sufficient housing units to keep up with demand. And that's essential for maintaining housing affordability. And that that key factor is what I want every, uh, not just real estate investor, but home buyer to understand. There is simply not enough housing. And so the more housing we can build or the more we can retrofit existing homes to add an additional bedroom, for example, if you can take the same square footage and let's say you can build a partition wall in the living room such that you create a new bedroom. You you take something that was a two-bedroom and turn it into a three-bedroom. Now you have just helped increase density. Or let's say that you retrofit a basement or an attic or a detached garage and turn that into an in-law suite or an, an accessory dwelling unit, right? That increases density. It, it increases supply. And that supply increase is what we need. That is the second key takeaway. Finally, key takeaway number three. Scott has a nuanced take on how to think through which cities to invest in, and I'll let him explain this in his own words. I think there's three ways to think about what you want to go for. Do you want cash flow? Mm -hmm. Do you want appreciation? Or are you looking for a hybrid? Mm -hmm. There's nothing that offers everything all at once, but you can get a blend of you know, if, if you're to plot out the appreciation and cash flow of the market, so you see a distinct trend line where there's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. There are bubbles, uh, you know, this is over the last five to 10 years. There are bubbles in, in a couple of markets that have done well with both, but you're really going to have to make a trade-off decision there. Yeah. Many investors choose cash flow. 
I think that's great. But I personally think that, you know, unless you are needing the cash flow in the near term, appreciation is going to net you off in a better place in five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. So you look at those net mi um, migration patterns, you look at where the supply is coming online and where it isn't. You look at places that you, you know, you know that you like, that you like to be a part of your life is so you could actually physically go there, visit, meet the people that are going to be renting your, uh, that are going to be managing your property and helping you find deals. I think those are going to give you distinct advantages and it's a bet of what's going to happen over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Those are some of the factors that you'll want to consider as you are deciding where to invest. So those are three key takeaways from this conversation with the CEO and president of Bigger Pockets, Scott Trench. We Afford Anything have a course on rental property investing. It's called Your First Rental Property. We only offer it a maximum of twice a year. This is the first time in all of 2023 that we are offering it. We only offered it once last year. Enrollment opens September 5th. And if you want to learn more about it, go to affordanything.com slash VIP list. That's affordanything.com slash VIP list. And that's where you'll get loads of information about it. Again, enrollment is opening on September 5th. That's coming up. And if you want to learn more, or if you just want to get a bunch of free information about real estate investing, maybe you're not sure if you want to take the course or not, but you at least want lots and lots of information about the real estate market, especially now, head to affordanything.com slash VIP list. We'll send you a ton of very useful, well-researched, nuanced, thoughtful information about the real estate market in 2023 and about whether or not this is a good time for you to invest. So affordanything.com slash VIP list for loads of free information and to learn more about our upcoming course, which opens on September 5th. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend or a family member and make sure that you hit subscribe or follow in whatever app you're using to listen to this show. Shout out, by the way, to everyone on Spotify who is part of the Afford Anything community, Spotify has this new feature where Spotify will ask, hey, what did you think of this episode? So I want to give a shout out to the, the people who answer, the people who voice their comments around the episode. Katrina Gabriel, uh, one week ago, says in response to a, an Ask Paula and Joe episode, she said, uh, hey, things I never expected include Paula referencing someone watching the Kardashians instead of checking their portfolio. Uh, yeah. I like to keep it fun that way. So thanks to everyone on Spotify who is uh, listening, who's part of this community. If you are listening on Spotify, come leave a comment, share what you thought of the episode, say hello. Also, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do the same. I want to give a shout out to somebody, Maxi Sophie on Apple Podcasts, who wrote a review called Best Financial Podcast. And Maxi Sophie says, Afford Anything is a very professionally done podcast with a wealth of information. Paula Pant is a great host, and she is an excellent speaker with a very nice radio voice. She also is a clear thinker and uses some unique ways of problem solving and decision making. Thank you, Maxie Sophie. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. So thank you so much to the community, to all of you who have left reviews, who have left comments. I read every single one. Thank you so much. And I hope that you uh, head to affordanything.com slash VIP list if you are interested in real estate. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything podcast, and I will catch you 
in the next episode.